Hey, everybody. It's that time where we read actual sponsors instead of just having them at the end of our show. We have them here in the beginning. But we read them this time, so they're different. That's right. This podcast is sponsored by Podbean. Podbean is the easiest way to create your own podcast. We use Podbean to host the classic gaming brothers. Download the free Podbean podcast app to start, record, and publish your very own podcast in minutes. Podbean provides everything you need to run your podcast, and you can record and publish episodes directly from the app on your phone. Download the free Podbean app today. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Podbean. Head over to Podbean at www.podbean.com for your first 30 days of podcast hosting for free. Check it out. And Gentle Breeze Fan, a fan that promises to cool your room with the subtle sound of a gentle breeze, accompanied by the soft, dulcet tones of the Classic Gaming Brothers, four easy payments of $9.99, payable to the Classic Gaming and Brothers. Atari brings the computer age home. Okay, Ma, what's the capital of Nebraska? Learn geography or get your jump shot on target. With Atari Home Computers, anything's possible. In fact, they just might be the wisest investment you'll ever make. Watch this. Hey, Mom. Hmm. What's the capital of Delaware? Uh, Don't I told you she's smart. Atari Home Computers. We brought the computer age home. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Classic Gaming Brothers. I'm Seth. And I'm Zach. And we are the Classic Gaming Brothers. That's right. We are the Classic That's Gaming Brothers. right. Welcome back, Classic Gaming listeners, to another episode. Where they've been. Maybe working? I like to think that our listeners listen to the episode, turn it off, and just sit there in silence until the next one comes out for a whole week. Well, I guess our listeners aren't that productive members of society. Neither are we. Well, we make episodes. I guess so. But what are we contributing to society? Audio signals. Our witty banter. That's right. Happiness, confusion, and anger, and perhaps sleepiness. I hope so. I want people to sleep to our episodes and dream of dusty video game consoles. Well, anyway, so let's get on to the show. Zach. Yes, Seth. What have uh, what have I been playing recently? What have you been playing recently? Funny that you ask. <laughs> recently, I've been playing uh, one of the last game by Zachtronics, which was uh, founded by Zach Barth back in 2000, which is now 24 years ago. One of their last games that they created is a game called Last Call BBS, and that game was released released back in August of 2022. Now, Zach Barth, who is the founder of the company, created uh, a number of games. Primarily, he does a lot of puzzle engineering puzzle games. So, like, they're puzzle games, but they're, like, engineering puzzles. Or, like, so they kind of teach you how to program, and, and it's it, they're kind of cool. One of the games that he created was a game called Infinity Miner, which Mojang which is the company that created Minecraft, which was founded by Notch. Notch liked Infinity Miner and thus created Minecraft. Yeah, Infinity Miner is very similar to Minecraft in terms of like voxel block building. I had a copy of Infinity Miner on my computer back in the day. Well, that was created by a man by the name of Zach. Zach and his team of at Zachtronics wanted to create a game that kind of encapsulated all of their games, but they also wanted to bring like a vintage feel to it. So they made a game called Last Call BBS. 
Uh, Last Call BBS plays on a Z5 Power Lance, which is like an old computer terminal. And you have to, in order to get games, you have to dial up to the internet and call onto the Last Call BBS and download games, which take time to download. In this game, they don't take as long as they used to take. Uh, They take anywhere between one to four minutes. And then you have, you can only have so many games. So you can't just go on and download all the games that they have and play them all and then just give it up. You have to like go on, download, while you're waiting, you can play Solitaire. Then you get the game downloaded. You can play the game. Then if you want to play another game, you can find another game. Download. Maybe play Solitaire or play that game you just downloaded. And so on and so forth. And it really brings back the feeling of being back in that time where uh, games were released on BBSs. And they were possibly pirated games that were on BBSs. And you can download them and play them. And nobody knew what was going on. Some of the games that are included they have a um, a Dungeons and Dragons type game but it's a puzzle game where you have to it's kind of almost like a weird minesweeper game essentially you're told you have a play field where there are um, possibly monsters or like treasure chests and then you have the ability to put walls in places and you have to build the maze that exists but by following the rules so like every monster needs to be at a dead end and every treasure chest needs to have like a three by three space around it and you can only put as many walls that are allowed in the run so say like this row can have five wall pieces and this column can have three wall pieces and you need to figure out where those wall pieces go which was uh, a lot of fun there was another game that was a, a fast food simulator where you had a essentially like a manufacturing plant while you're trying to make food and you had to make the correct order in as quick as turns as possible so you may have like a order for nachos or pretzels so you would have a device that would output a nacho and then you would have a device that would output a tray those go onto belts and then you would have to get like a stacking device to put the nacho into the tray and then you would have to have a scanner device to say like this is a nacho so then when it says this is a nacho the cheese machine would spray the nacho cheese on the nacho because if you didn't say this was a nacho it would spray it on the pretzel which i mean i guess that would work but in this particular game nacho cheese only went on nachos and not on pretzels and you would use essentially a logic gate you'd have to connect the different logic gates so that everything kind of worked in the way it was supposed to work so yeah so those are kind of a couple of games the last game that i was playing was this design game where you're designing circuit connectors so you have these two different sections of like in and outs and you had to connect the in and outs but you had to use like um silicon and there's like two different types of silicon and if you cross the two silicons you can make a transistor and then there's also you can put in like ties and metal to get the electricity to go to them but you have to maintain the frequency of what calls for in the solution so the solution will say like you need to only have the in light up while there's high voltage on this other thing and you'd have to layer out the transistors and the um, capacitors and everything and really build your own circuit board which was really cool so I, I like these type of games they get you thinking and they also are fun and they kind of can sump you and it's it's kind of cool i really like them um so yeah so if you're interested in a kind of if you're if you just
just listened to our best episode ever, the puzzle episode, and are interested in learning about more puzzle games, uh, check out Last Call BBS. I will. Now, Zach. Yes, Seth. What have you been recently been playing? Well, recently, Seth, I have been playing Aperture Desk Job. Oh, that's fun. Yes, it is. It's a tech demo for the Steam Deck developed by Valve. It's a fairly short tech demo. It only takes like a probably about an hour or so to go through. It was released in 2022 and is a tool to showcase the features of the Steam Deck and the controller of the Steam Deck. It's a neat little game. Uh, you play as an employee at Aperture Science. You're tasked with testing toilets. Uh, and then you're introduced to a personality core that assists you in the development of a turret so then you can use a turret and shoot things it's set in the portal universe sometime before glados floods aperture science with the deadly neurotoxin that she floods it with and uh it takes place during the administration of cave johnson as the ceo and you get to meet cave johnson at one point so that's fun uh it's a short little game if you have a steam deck i definitely recommend checking it out if you like portal don't expect going into it as like portal 3 it's by no means that but it is a, a fun little little uh side story in the portal universe um it has a lot of the same humor that portal has so if you like portal as a game and you like that kind of humor then i would check out aperture desk job it is free on steam and also teaches you your steam deck controls it does it does which was useful though i'm not a big fan of gyroscopic controls just as a general um they kind of frustrate me but it was kind of it was neat to see how the steam deck does them nice to get into today's episode it's actually uh fitting that seth was talking about something that was centered around the time period that we're going to be alluding to which is the 1980s because we are talking about the atari 8-bit line of computers we've alluded to them plenty of times before almost every episode that we've talked about a game that's released for a like an old console we've said that it's probably been ported to the atari 8-bit line yeah it's along the lines where we say uh 8-bit atari amstrad cpc <laughs> uh amiga and we've talked about things like the Commodore. I think we've talked about the Amstrad. I can't remember. But we've talked about other computers like the Spectrum and the Commodore 64. So let's talk about Atari and Atari's jump into the world of computers during this time period. Unfortunately for Atari and for us, I don't believe that Atari had such bangers as our, uh, with, when a Commodore is portable a commodore oh yeah keep up with you, you. keeping up with the commodore, <laughs> the commodore. because the commodore, the commodore is keeping, is keeping up, with up, with you. up with you are you keeping up with the yeah no bangers like that for the atari <laughs> No, no, no. Now, in the later part of the 1970s, Atari had already hit a home run with their VCS console, also known as the Atari 2600. As the 70s were coming to a close and the 80s loomed, there was discussion about the next video game system. Early designs from the staff aimed at making an updated version of the VCS, removing limitations that the console had by improving things like speed, sound, and graphics. However, they also wanted to keep the design scheme similar to what the VCS provided, as they felt that was a valuable selling point. At the same time, there was a growing rise of home computers. Microcomputers like the TRS-80, Apple II, and Commodore PET were on the market and rapidly gaining interest as they were distinct from the hobbyist-style machines that came before them. So just as a quick reminder for anyone who uh, might not remember, because we've talked about it before, microcomputers is a term that is used to describe home computers, as opposed to a mini-computer. 
computer, which is a large computer, usually about the size of a dresser, maybe a little bigger, which is different than a mainframe, which is about the size of an entire room. <laughs> so those are the scale that we're working with here. They were called microcomputers because they could fit in, in your house <laughs> as opposed to taking up an entire building. <laughs> now, early microcomputers were things like the IMSI or the Altair, which were kits. You assembled them. Um, they were incredibly simple. They didn't even run basic. Um, you had to key in basic using hex codes. They were systems that were designed for people who liked doing nerdy things, to put it simply. Microcomputers like the TRS-80, the Apple II, and the Commodore PET, these were designed for the home market for people who weren't necessarily computer savvy, for people who wanted to have the convenience of the mainframe or the mini computer that their boss had, that they maybe use a terminal at work, but at the, their home. In 1976, Atari was sold to Warner Communications and Ray Kasser had been installed as the CEO. Ray saw the design work that Atari developers had put into the new game system, such as the development of an improved coprocessor chipset, as a potential way for Atari to combat Apple. From here, Atari shifted from creating a new home game system to creating their first home computer. In 1979, they had two prototypes called Colleen and Candy. The names reportedly came from secretaries at the Atari offices. Both systems would rely on the newly developed chipset called CTIA, which was able to generate backgrounds and sprites and had dedicated micro coprocessor to offset the load on the CPU of the computer you're building. The CTIA chip was, by many accounts, one of the most technologically advanced chips on the market, with even MOS Technologies' Chuck Peddle reportedly realized that Atari's chip would outpace Commodore's upcoming video driver, but he was unable to tell anyone because he was under NDA at the time. For context, Moss Technology was like heavily, heavily involved with Commodore, and Chuck Peddle happened to be working with Atari on some projects, so he saw this like amazing new thing that Atari was developing, and he could not go and tell Commodore, by the way, your competition's about to come swiftly. Now, let's talk about Candy and Colleen. Candy would go on to become the Atari 400 and was originally intended to have 4 kilobyte of RAM with expansion slots up to 16 kilobytes. And Colleen, later known as Atari 800, was intended to have 8 kilobytes of RAM with an expansion up to 48 kilobytes. So we all knew who was the favorite secretary in the office. Now, the computers, however, would ship with their expansion slots maxed out. The systems were interesting in design. The 400 had a membrane keyboard with a cover that housed the cartridge slot, which is interesting because membrane keyboards at this time were cool because they were new. Mechanical keyboards, which the 800 had, were not cool because they were old. But now we're, we flipped around and now membrane keyboards are not cool and mechanical keyboards are cool. It's just how things work. I feel like a mechanical keyboard just has precision that a membrane keyboard can't have, but regardless, the 400 had a membrane keyboard. The 800, however, had a mechanical keyboard. It did have a similar cover, but it had two cartridge slots instead of just one. Both systems had four joystick ports, though barely any games would go on to support these ports. Uh, later revisions of the Atari 800 would also take out the secondary cartridge slot, as only one cartridge was ever produced that made use of the right slot. Just peripheral and ports for peripheral that just didn't do anything. <laughs> yeah. Now, the design for the systems were based on the idea of whether or not the systems were user-friendly. A quote from one executive is that their design model was based around the question, does the end user care about the architecture of the machine? No. 
guess what? They still don't. And that users were more concerned about what the system could actually do rather than what was under the hood. Whoever this executive is is probably still an executive somewhere. Probably. That's a smart take to have for a time period like the 80s when I think people, a lot of companies thought users cared a bit well, yeah, more. Yeah, like blast do. processing and yeah. ex- ex- experimenting on mode 7, like just telling you about the features that your thing had when ultimately people just wanted it to be able to do it. You didn't have yeah, to tell they just them wanted it, the thing. You didn't need to tell me that there's a million different things going on underneath. One issue that arose with the development of the consoles uh, was with the Federal Communications Commission, also known as the FCC. Back in 1970, video game systems interacted with TVs through RF modulators, and the RF modulator would convert the signal from the game console into a radio frequency. Once you go into the radio frequency, you now are moving into the FCC domain, because that could be picked up by an antenna jack or coax port of the TV. And with so many devices in a house utilizing RF modulators and barely any guidance on how RF modulators were intended to work, the FCC received complaints that nearby houses could have interference from somebody's device. This problem wasn't something that Apple, Commodore, or Tandy had to worry about. The PET and the TRS-80 had built-in monitors. Apple avoided the issue by simply not having an RF modulator in the Apple II, with it primarily being connected via composite jack. So it's only when really when a machine needed to interact with a television set. If Atari just gave monitors for the Atari 800 or 400, they wouldn't have this issue. Which would have been expensive. Right, exactly. So instead they had to deal with the FCC. And the reason they didn't go the Apple route was because they wanted to appeal to more of a consumer base than what Apple was targeting. If you think about it, to use an Apple II, like my Apple II, I can connect it up to like a composite monitor or a modern, even a modern TV that has a composite jack. But if I wanted to connect it up to like an old tube TV, like I have an old 80s tube, TV that doesn't have composite ports, I have to get an RF modulator to transmit the signal. And Apple did not bundle RF modulators. You had to get them separately and through a third party if you wanted to do that. Um, Apple didn't care that people were doing it. It's just they weren't doing it because they didn't want to get hit with FCC violations. Right. And because of Atari, the FCC got stringent when it came to RF modulator technology, meaning that the machine would essentially have to be built out like a tank. If you've ever held or seen the Atari 400-800, you'll notice it has a heavy aluminum shield inside of it. This shield was designed to prevent RF leakage. Uh, Another thing you might have noticed is a complete lack of ports, with only a power port, control port, and a proprietary input called the SIO port. The SIO, which stands for Serial Input Output, that port allowed Atari to sell external units that could then be daisy-chained to each other. So you could they could sell maybe a cassette reader or a cartridge reader that you would then plug into that serial I.O. port. Yes, exactly. So they had, uh, there was a cassette reader, there was a modem, there were disc readers. Uh, and the thing was, is there was only one SIO port, but every device you got came with an SIO port on it. So the cassette reader had an SIO port on it. So you could connect your disc drive to your cassette reader to your Atari, and thus you would have the daisy chain. Now, the Atari 400 and the 800 did not have basic built into them basic would be distributed as a cartridge for the system later versions of the 8-bit line would have basic as the default program when you booted the system but for the 400 and the 800 it would be atari os which was its own proprietary os if there was no program in the console 
you would have a memo pad that you can type on um, that had no other function but to type on it. Now, the version of BASIC that was going to be used was going to be Microsoft BASIC, which was the most popular form of BASIC at the time, but Atari decided to not license Microsoft BASIC, and instead they developed their own version of BASIC called Atari BASIC. Both systems would launch in November of 1979. The 400 retailed for $550, which is about $2,300 today, and the 800 retailed for $1,000, which is about $4,000 today. So these were moderately expensive computers for the time. Now in 1982, Atari would actually release a successor to the Atari 2600. And the only reason we're talking about the Atari 5200 is because it's basically just a 400 slash 800 in a different shell. And it is in a hefty shell. By hefty, we mean the system is 13 inches by 15 inches and is about four and a quarter inches tall and also weighed almost 10 pounds. This thing is massive. If you've ever seen the Atari 5200, it looks like a VCR. It's big. The 2600, as a comparison, only weighed about just a little under four pounds. So you can probably guess which one would probably be the uh, easier one to carry around. Internally, the Atari 5200 was basically the same as one of the 8-bit computers with some modifications. For one thing, it had a different OS. It was essentially the same, but was stripped down. Um, it also had some modified hardware registers and it lacked keyboard support. The 5200 also had some oddities about it, such as the RF box and the power supply were connected to a single cable, which branched out into a specialized unit. The game controllers featured 19 buttons, which included a dial pad, three buttons that could be used to pause or stop or reset the game, and four action buttons on the side of the controller, which basically did the same thing. And also the controller was highly unreliable and would frequently break. The 5200 would fail as a console for a variety of reasons. Reasons. One of those reasons was it was not backwards compatible with either Atari 2600 games, which you needed a special adapter to play, and it was not compatible with the existing line of Atari 8-bit games, which was odd because it literally was an Atari 8-bit computer, but the Atari 8-bit cartridges literally do not fit in the 5200 and there was no adapter made. So you could not play Atari 8-bit games on a 5200. You had to play the 5200 version of these games, which were exactly the same as the 8-bit games. The Atari 5200 also does not have an SIO port, meaning the only way to play games was via the cartridge slot. In 1982, Atari would move on from the 5200 and they would put out their first in their XL line of computers, the 1200XL, which retailed for $899 at the time, which in today's money is about $2,800. Cheaper than their 800 Yes, but because of the way inflation works, the, yeah, cheaper than the 800 <laughs> Because the 800 retailed for 1000 but in today's money, that's about 4000 because it came out in 79 and this came out in 82 which retailed for 899 The inflation puts it at about 3000 Money's fake. It's true. The 1200 only lasted about a year, so it was released in 82, and it would be discontinued in 83, and wouldn't even make it through the whole year of 83. It would be discontinued in June, due to an overall failure in the market. One of the main problems was that the 1200 according to many sources, such as Computer History 
gamesdev.org.uk um, stated that it could play some 8-bit games, but there were compatibility issues. And honestly, if you are buying a new computer that is being sold to you as a better version of the old computer, it darn well should play the old version of those games, right? So people were not impressed by it, and ultimately the 1200 was discontinued. In 1983, Atari would put out the 800XL and the 600XL, which would be backwards compatible with the previous 8-bit line of software. A problem that these consoles did face, however, was that there were stock and parts shortages, so Atari could not meet Commodore in terms of price point. Uh, this essentially meant that the C64 would take on the hold of the com home computer market, while Atari would begin to slink back into the background. And now in 1983, there was something else that happened, uh, and that was that the market crashed. Uh, Atari would go into split into two, and in 1984, Jack Trammell resigned from Commodore, the company he founded, and purchased the consumer division of Atari from Warner, and he named his part of the company the Atari Corporation. And we talk about this back in our Atari episode, and I think we talk about it in our Commodore episode, but essentially the constant competition between Atari and Commodore would go on to see the CEO of Commodore buying Atari. <laughs> But not as Commodore buying Atari, <laughs> just him. He quit Commodore. There's news reports at the time that were like, Commodore founder Jack Trammell has left for their competitor, Atari. <laughs> now, Trammell would go on to restructure the XL systems into the XE series of computers. The 65XE and the 130XE were announced in 1985 and were announced at the same time as the Atari ST, which was a 16-bit computer as opposed to an 8-bit computer. Now... Just so you know, I believe we're 64 bits right now is what we're current wind operating computer systems. Yes. The 65XE would go on to launch with 64 kilobytes of RAM, and the 130XE would go on to launch with 128 kilobytes of RAM, which is crazy to think that a megabyte is a thousand kilobytes. <laughs> and this has 128 kilobytes of RAM, and I don't even know what just has a megabyte that's for storage that's available. That's something that these kids would understand. Let's see. Gigabyte. This the common storage unit that we deal with now is a thousand megabytes. <laughs> now, lastly, Atari uh, would go on to release the Atari XE video game system, which is basically an Atari 65 XE, except it's redesigned to be a dedicated home console. So it looks like a home console, but it's just an Atari 65 XE. Or like your modern day consoles, your Xbox and Playstations, they're just, they're just computers and fancy little containers. While it is compatible with the line of Atari 8-bit games, it also has some new release games such as Archon, The Light and the Dark, Barnyard Blaster, and Summer Games. The XEVGS would also boot to Missile Command instead of BASIC if you disconnected the keyboard. So if you just had a, a controller plugged in and no keyboard and you just turned it on, boom, Missile Command. <laughs> yeah, that was great. Now on the topic of games, the Atari 8-bit line did have a bunch of them. Not only did it have ports of various arcade classics like Donkey Kong and Asteroids, but it also featured titles like Star Raiders, which was this like kind of first-person space shooter. Um, it was actually the Atari 8-bit line's killer app. People bought the Atari 8-bit computers for Star Raiders. Star Raiders, though, would get ported to the Atari 2600 and to some other consoles, but for a while at least, the reason to own an Atari 8-bit computer was for Star Raiders. Another Another popular game would be the multiplayer strategy game Mule, which in the game stands for multiple
multiple use labor element. This would go on to be ported to various other computers like the C64 and the IBM PC. Though from what I can tell, people mostly played like the original version of Mule, um, which was the Atari version. At least that's the remembered version from what I could see. Mule reportedly would be the game that would inspire Shigeru Miyamoto to create the game Pikmin. Just a fun fact. Um, that is according to an interview with Miyamoto in the Japanese website for gamer.net. And another fun fact about Mule that I wanted to include was that it was believed that the original source code was lost until it was revealed to be in the possession of businessman Julian Egerbricht, um, who was one of the people who worked at Factor 5, like the company that made Rogue Squadron. Oh, he had a fun. copy of the original source code of Mule because he pitched a 16-bit version of it back in the 1980s and he forgot he had it. He forgot oh, he had it until the 2020 <laughs> when he found it. What's funny is I, I'm going to widely guess on this, but it's possible that like someone gave him that so he just probably forgot to return it <laughs> like because he was a businessman yeah. so he wasn't like the one making the game yeah or like maybe maybe the people had a vested interest in it and he was like hey i want to do a 16-bit version of the game and somebody was like yeah sure like here's the source code you know and then with the understanding that if it made into a 16-bit game whoever gave the source code to them may have been like a licensor and so they would have been like being able to make some money off the new mule game now, uh, games for the 8-bit line were primarily released on cartridge, but there were also games released on tape and floppy disk games that could be played if you had the proper peripheral. Yes, nothing like owning a console system and then needing to buy other... Wait, I think there are console systems where you have to buy other adapters. Isn't there this thing that's out there that you have to buy different slots depending on what type of thing yes, you want it? Yes, the, the Polymega. The Polymega. So like an Atari 8-bit line was kind of like a Polymega where you buy the original base that could do some stuff. But if you want to do more complicated things, you have to buy more parts. <laughs> To be fair, that was just computers in the 1980s because, like, even the Apple II didn't come with a disk drive. <laughs> That's true. Now, the Atari 8-bit line overall sold fairly well, with an estimated 4 million being sold by 1984. However, despite the overall numbers and sales being decent, the volume of sales dropped over year over year. By the time that Tramel took over Atari, they had only sold 700,000 units in that year, whereas Commodore had sold 2 million that year. The 5200 would go on to sell 1 million units in total, which may sound like a good amount, but it's important to remember that the Atari 2600 had sold 30 million units. So 1 million is much less than 30 million. It's in fact 30 times less. So the 5200 sold a decent amount, but it wasn't commercially successful a decent amount. Or, well, it wasn't great for Atari. Yeah, it was definitely not commercially successful. <laughs> yeah, Atari was very sad. The XE video game system would go on to sell 100,000 units before being discontinued in 1992 because it would only go on to sell 100,000 units and Atari saw that take off and promptly watched that shuttle explode. <laughs> now, the Atari 8-bit line would of course lead into the development of what became the Atari ST, which was their 16-bit line of computers. And the ST launched in 85. From what I can see from various websites and forums dedicated to computers, there is a lasting memory of the Atari 8-bit line uh, from primarily people who use them. I do want to say that it's not 
as like prevalent as maybe the Commodore or even the Apple. Uh, there's definitely more people that you'll see talking fondly and reminiscing and programming for those computers today. But there is still a, I would say, a, a decently dedicated amount of fans of the Atari 8-bit line who still keep up work on developing for the 8-bit line of computers. There is a lively homebrew scene with Atari 8-bit computer games still being sold and um, even 5200 homebrews being made and sold via the website Atari Age. Back in 2006, the designer of the Atari flashback, Kurt Vendel, ended up finding out and stating that the Atari 8-bit chipsets were in fact in the public domain. And I believe the Atari 8-bit ROM, like the ROM of the computer, is in the public domain and thus the emulator that you can use for the Atari 8-bit computers is freeware. As of 2024, there is a, a new thing coming out. The Atari 400 mini console, which is due to be released. Pre-orders, uh, I think, are sold out at the moment. It was um, selling for a couple hundred bucks. Uh, I saw that John Riggs mentioned it, but I also uh, went to the website to take a look at it. It's a tiny version of the Atari 400 with a non-functional keyboard, and it has USB slots instead of the uh, the four ports that the original one had. So um, that is going to feature 25 games, and we'll have like HDMI capability and all the other things that you'd expect from a mini console. So that's pretty cool that Atari at least is acknowledging the 8-bit line. It's nice to see the 8-bit line getting some love and hopefully the 400 mini is, I don't want to say it's like going to be a success because those mini consoles are never like groundbreaking, but hopefully it will see some love from people who might never have experienced it. Well, I went to the Atari website and I just wanted to read off some things about the Atari 400 mini that's coming out. Uh, it's MSRPing at $119 and 99 cents it's currently on a waitlist status so whatever they had available for pre-order has now been sold out and they're waitlisting for if you want to get a copy of it it's going to release on march of 2024 and it's going to include as zach mentioned uh 25 built-in games i just wanted to mention that it's going to include mule so if yeah. you wanted to play and it's also going to include star raiders 2 berserk and millipede i always feel like sometimes especially when the comes a millipede i always feel like millipedes like centipedes like i looked up centipede versus millipede and i got gross pictures <laughs> millipede is the sequel to centipede but centipede is like the game that i think of when i think of those type of games they're kind of like space shooters except you're shooting bugs long bugs not to be confused with space invaders where you shoot small bugs referring to every alien as a, as a bug <laughs> they do look like bugs they're Xenos. They must be just exterminated for the Emperor. <laughs> now, that will do it for our Atari 8-Bit episode. If anyone has any memories of the Atari 8-Bit line, be sure to reach out to us. We're going to get into our retro rewind now. Seth had me play Earthworm Jim 3D for the N64. Earthworm Jim 3D was released by VIS Interactive and published in 1999. And oh, yeah. there was also a version of it released on Steam, like, within the last few years, I'm pretty Pretty sure. I'm pretty I'm pretty sure I selected this game by Googling bad games in like 1999. Sure enough, it is not a great game. It's a 3D platformer where you play as the titular Earthworm Jim, who has gotten stuck in his own subconscious. I think the plot is he gets hit by something, gets knocked out, and is now in a coma. So you're inside his subconscious and you have to go through like your memories and your emotions to uh figure out what's going on with, with yourself. It's odd. It's an odd game. Earthworm Jim has the kind 
kind of humor that you would expect Earthworm Jim to have. If you're familiar with the games uh, for the, the Sega Genesis and uh, the SNES, Earthworm Jim 1 and 2, then you'll probably be familiar with the humor of Earthworm Jim 3D. It's kind of humor that like Rocco's Modern Life or Ren and Stimpy have. Um, this kind of irreverent, sometimes gross humor that is, okay, I guess, it's very 90s, it's very dated. Uh, the gameplay, however is just bad. Uh, the controls are all over the place. Uh, the frame rate is uncomfortable and the camera is nauseating. I couldn't see where I was going. Sometimes the camera would just go behind like a piece of wall and then I just couldn't see where Jim was. Uh, in one part of the level, I walked into a room and started getting shot at by a guy and it took me like 10 minutes to get the camera to face the guy who was attacking me. And even then he was still like in the corner of the screen and I could barely see him. Uh, I ended up just kind of watching wandering around a lot of the time. Overall, I, I would recommend the original Earthworm Gyms 1 and 2. They're fun platformers. I would say stay away from this game. Next week, Seth, I want you to play... Mega Man 3 for the NES. Now, Zach had me play uh, Commander Keem 1, Marooned on Mars, which is the first episode in, in Commander Keem Invasion of the Vorticons, which also has the episode The Earth Explodes and Keem Must Die. So as Commander Keem was originally developed by id Software and published by Apogee, it was developed as a shareware. They developed it as shareware, so they released it as episodes, so you they would give you a free episode as shareware, and you would buy the other episodes because you would enjoyed it that's how doom did it that's how commander keen did it that's kind of like id software would go on to become id so it makes sense that when they became id and made doom that they sold things similar to how they sold commander keen because they were used to that method of selling now is published by apogee which is probably why i got confused because i was talking about chips challenge and commander keen is kind of like chips challenge in that they both start with c commander keen would go on to be published back in december of 19 1990 and i think that we actually talk about commander keen in our episode about duke nukem and also possibly about doom pretty much yeah, whenever we talk so. about apogee or talk about id we probably mentioned commander keen at some point in time it's spread around our episodes it's a pretty staple type game we may actually make an episode about it in its own right however the game itself is a side-scrolling platform game where you play as commander keen you can move left and right and jump up and down sometimes you get a pogo stick or a blaster there are aliens around and you are looking for things to fix your ship at least in the original game now the game is a fun platformer but you do need to take your time and explore each level and not rush there's no timer but and you're not restricted with exploring levels but if you make stupid mistakes you will die and the game has like these clam things that if you jump on you'll die kind of annoying but that's what the game's calling about exploring these levels trying to find different uh, pieces missing from your ship and not jumping into clams which i tend to do it holds up pretty well with regards to its solid control decent graphics for the era i think that the game uh unlike i don't believe zach is saying that earthworm gym 3d holds up pretty well i would say that commander keen is not a game that i if i told you to play it i wouldn't be sad about it and you wouldn't be sad about it either next week zach you can play rick dangerous 2 for ms dos i will seth thank you now thank you everyone for listening if anyone has any memories of the atari 8-bit computers be sure to email us at classicgamingbrothers at gmail.com we can be found wherever podcasts can be found and you can also find us on facebook classic gaming brothers instagram classic gaming brothers twitter cg brothers pod or blue sky cg brothers pod seth is there anything i'm forgetting don't play games like my brother and don't play games like my brother i've been seth and i've been zach and we've been the classic gaming brothers that's, that's right, right.